and making a difference every day. Welcome to the Animal Care and Welfare Podcast, iBuzz, where we combine the science and practice of animal welfare in a fun and engaging way, where we answer questions, find solutions, discuss tools, and achieve results, all for happy animals and people. I'm your host, Sabrina Brando, and this podcast is brought to you by Animal Concepts, and the Practical Animal Welfare Science Membership Experience. Let's buzz. Okay, welcome, welcome. Today I am talking with friend and colleague Jen Forestein from the US, joining us from Florida. Hello, Jen. Hey, Sabrina. Good morning, everybody. How are you doing? We're good. We're good. Thank you. How is it going in Florida? It's a really interesting time for all of us, right? and you are still busy with caring for animals in your capacity. Yes, so I um, am fortunate that I'm able to work from home. So right now I am Director of Human Resources for Humane Society Naples, which is a private animal shelter here in Naples, Florida. And um, so I'm really lucky that most of my tasks I can do from home and our administrative staff is sort of standing by in case were needed at the shelter to care for the animals. Um, but we're also lucky that most of our animals were either adopted or sent to foster care before uh, the stay at home order in Florida uh, started and our community really stepped up to help our animals. So we're super grateful for that. Oh, that's absolutely wonderful. It's similar here in Spain. So many shelters have gotten support from their local communities and lots of animals have found new homes. So. That's uh, one of the positive things uh, from this quite, uh, of course, trying uh, situation that so many of us are in. But, you know, we actually got to know each other, not working with shelter animals or dogs, but uh, actually with uh, primates and chimpanzees uh, specifically. So maybe you can say a little bit about your background because you actually have a very long history of working with primates. Yeah, so um, I figure people probably wonder, what's a shelter person doing talking about chimpanzees? But in my previous life, um, I worked with a wide variety of non-human primates, um, but the bulk of my career was with chimpanzees. So I started out in the early 90s as an intern at the Cincinnati Zoo and just fell in love with the prosimians there. We had lemurs and pottos and... Um, bush babies, lorises, um, really a wide variety, and I was just fascinated by all of them. So I started studying primates in college, primate behavior, um, and after that went to capuchin monkeys, and then I ended up working um, at a research laboratory that had a lot of old world primates, so that was my first exposure to macaques and mangabees, and that's where I met chimps, and I just fell absolutely in love with them, really forged just a natural connection with them. And then I moved into the chimp sanctuary world and that's how we met because we um, both participated in a PASA workshop at um, 
Olpegida, Sweetwater's Chimpanzee Sanctuary. Yes, absolutely. That was such a great, I think it's maybe, um, I want to say six, seven years ago, but... Uh, yeah, I think maybe. it was in 2012, so almost eight Oh, years. yes, that's right. Yeah, yeah, that's absolutely right. Yeah, so we met uh, also with, uh, with Debbie Cox, another amazing uh, private yes. person, and uh, we had such a great time working with the staff at the Sweetwaters. Um, sanctuary for with the chimpanzees and you did some of the great talks on like speaking chimpanzees and talking about the behavior of the animals and their facial expressions and their sounds and maybe you can say a little bit more about that because I think that was so you know helpful to them to understand the animals better and interact with them in a in a better way as well. Yeah for me you know all my years of working with chimps really um what I found to be so important is, you know, forging a one-on-one -on -one connection with each chimpanzee and doing that by communicating with them in their language and in their behavior, um, modeling that as best as possible, and also, you know, having a good understanding of what their vocalizations and body language um, mean, um, you know, how it might represent you know, our best guess of their internal states and their wants and their needs. And so, um, so I've always found that to be really important. And I do feel like um, forging that connection did come easily to me and it doesn't come easily to everybody. So, um, but it can be taught and I enjoy doing that as much as possible. Great. So what do you think, why does it come easy to you? What is it that you maybe see that you do or that you have taught yourself perhaps over time or are more sensitive to than some of the skills that others obviously, like you say, can be taught? So what are some of these characteristics or aspects that you think are helpful to be good at this? You know, it's, it's hard to say. I do think some of it um, on one hand is kind of a bit inherent or a bit natural. Even from a child, I always forged um, a stronger connection. I found it easier to forge a connection with um, dogs and other animals, almost more than humans. Um, I always joke that I had more dog friends in my neighborhood than, than <laughs> who were my friends. So I think part of it was just, for whatever reason, I do have some kind of an inherent ability or connection um, with animals. It's not magical, but it's just, you know, something that I just have always had, just a skill that I've always had. Um, but the other side of it is simply being very, very observant um, and just, and watching them um, and looking at everything that they're doing, not just their vocalizations, but their, their body language, you know, is their hair standing on end? Where are they looking and what are they looking at? That's always been um, really important to me, following their gaze and seeing what they're responding to. Um, and then practice. Like I genuinely, when I would be commuting home uh, from my work in the research laboratory after I started working with chimps, I was in the car by myself. So I would practice my pant hoots and my grunts and my chimp laughs in the car on the way home until I perfected it as, as best as possible. So um, yeah, so it's, it's a combination, I think, of um, just natural observation, natural connection, but also practicing. Yes, 
Oh, it's of course extremely tempting now to ask you to make all kinds of chimpanzee sounds because everybody always wants to hear them, right? They're like, oh, can you do this one? Can you do that one? But we'll, <laughs> we'll, we'll rather not right now. But uh, yeah, I know you're very good at it because I've heard you uh, do it. But uh, And I like that. That's really such a great example of how, like you say, you practice and you practice until you get as close as possible to, you know, the sounds that they're making. Uh, and that, of course, many of these things take a lot of time. It's not, uh, sometimes, you know, people think, oh, we'll just quickly do this or quickly learn that. But uh, as you in your career, I'm sure, have um, gone through so much practicing skills that have taken you quite a long time to master. Yeah, absolutely. So, and then also just, you know, connecting with other people who've worked with chimps for a long time and asking for, for their help and their mentorship. I mean, I, I've done that with, with many people, especially when I was first starting to work with chimps, um, you know, asking them for information, for articles, for their ideas and their suggestions um, on relating to them and, and building upon that has been super helpful for me as well. And do you have some like favorite story or memory of maybe I'm, I'm sure obviously we have met so many different individuals over the, your time of caring for animals but are there like some there's always some individuals that stand out that have that you know sweet spot in your heart do you have some yeah, nice stories so, to share yeah there's so many um but i i always enjoy telling the story of how i um like the first time I really had a, a connection or communication with a chimpanzee, um, I was still working in um, the research laboratory and the chimps there lived in large social groups and I had not worked with the chimps yet. I was a monkey girl and um, I at that time didn't really have any interest in working with the chimps, but I walked by one of their enclosures and I saw that a young male had a screwdriver and um, now I probably wouldn't be that alarmed, but then I was like, well, I knew chimps were smart um, and that they knew how to use tools. And so I was concerned that maybe he would dismantle something. I was also concerned he might hurt another chimpanzee with it. So I told my supervisor and she said, oh, you can just go get an orange and his mother, Gwenny, will probably trade, you know, the screwdriver for the orange. And I was <laughs> like, okay, I can do that. Sure, I'll go do that. So I walked up with an orange and his mother, Gwynny, the second she saw me with the orange, she knew what I wanted because she went over to her son and she grabbed the screwdriver. So that first like amazed me that she grasped my intent before I did anything other than approach. And then there was um, a gap um, in their enclosure where we would um, pour their food and they could get their arms out all the way. In hindsight, it's rather dangerous, but um, they could get their arms out all the way. So she stuck both of her arms through that gap. Um, one had the screwdriver, one hand had the screwdriver, and one hand was open to receive the orange. So I placed the orange in her hand, but I didn't let go. And at the same time, I started to pull, you know, on the screwdriver. And she just had a death grip on it. And I realized she's trying, at least from my perspective, it seemed like she was trying to con me out of that orange. <laughs> so I pulled back and I just, I said to her, I said, I'm sorry, I can't give you the orange, you know, without getting the screwdriver. And um, 
she let go of the screwdriver and I gave her the orange. And I just walked away with the biggest grin on my face and I really could not believe I could have that level of communication and understanding, really nonverbal, um, between you know me and another species. Like I was just fascinated by that and honored by it. And so from then on, I started begging to work with the chimps. Um, so they, they're the ones who, they hooked me in pretty quickly and pretty easily. Um, but I, I'll never forget that moment. Oh, that's a wonderful story. And like you say, you know, just seeing that she already knows why you're there and, um, you know, also trying, you know, to see, you know, obviously you were probably pretty new and they were like, okay, what, what can I do here? You know, what will she, you know, let us get away with? So that's, that's such a wonderful story. And I'm sure, like you say, you're going to have many of them. So you, you mentioned like you were a monkey girl. So can you say something about you working with monkeys and then, in what ways did that also shape you working with chimpanzees or helped you working with chimpanzees or the other way around? Of course, you know, in the last few uh, years, you've also helped uh, PASA with some capacity building in Africa where you actually helped also, you know, working with monkeys again. So can you talk about that interaction? Yeah, so um, when I was an intern at the zoo, there were a couple of monkey species, um, New World monkeys, some marmosets, and some calotrichids, but I didn't do too much with them. Um, and But when I started studying non-human primates in college and then later in grad school, um, I focused on um, capuchin monkeys. It was kind of by chance. It was, um, there was a um, research program, behavioral research program that allowed me to come and do a, a senior thesis project with them, and then I continued my studies with them um, in grad school. So it just happened to be um, brown capuchins. And, um, and they were a blast. I mean, they were, they're super smart. Um, they, they use tools. I mean, Franz de Waal and other people sometimes refer to them as the South American chimpanzee um, because, you know, behaviorally and cognitively, they're pretty similar um, to chimpanzees. So I really enjoyed working with them, getting to know them as individuals. Um, it was, you know, all captive colony. I didn't, I didn't have the opportunity to study them in the field, um, but I studied their, their social learning, you know, how they transferred skills from um, adults to, to juveniles. And so that was my area of study. And then when I shifted over to doing more animal care work rather than um, academic work, um, again, it was, I just happened to get this opportunity at the research laboratory and they had more old world monkeys. Um, very different from capuchins. Um, they seem to be, you know, a little bit more suspicious and wary of humans, um, really seeing us as food delivery systems, I think more than anything else. But I was still just, their behavior was just fascinating to me. Um, their, you know, love for their, their family members and their infants and, um, and just the complexity of their societies. I really enjoyed working um, with them. And so I was really happy to, um, to be able to go to Malawi, um, which, you know, where I was invited to last year. And um, learned some new monkey species, met baboons and blue monkeys, which I'd never seen before, absolutely beautiful, and um, vertebrate monkeys. And 
like all monkeys, I'm, you know, they're just, they're fascinating in their, in their intelligence and their observational skills and, um, and their just overall mental abilities. I really am always fascinated. I never tire of watching them. Wonderful. So you actually already just in these last, you know, 10 minutes that we're talking, you have talked about you work at the zoo, you work at research labs, you work in sanctuaries. Now, people might have very different feelings or ideas of animals in all these different environments. Can you speak a little bit to that in, you know, in what ways are they obviously very different? But also in what ways are they very similar in you know how people are dedicated to caring for them and and other aspects of this because you've you've really been across all these different uh, facilities yeah um you know and my experience there has has shaped my um views on captivity for sure um and i know not everyone agrees with this point of view but i would rather that there not be any you know wildlife species in captivity and and maybe there will be a day when that's possible um but in the meantime those who are in captivity absolutely need our care and our attention um and they need the best care possible no matter what environment they're in whether it's a, a research facility or a zoo or a sanctuary and we need people to do that um, we need people who are compassionate and caring and absolutely devoted to the well-being um, of the individuals in their care. And so to me, that's, that's the most vital thing, is are we doing everything possible that, that we can do within the environment that, um, that they're in to provide them with an enriched life, a social life, um, a life free from pain and discomfort, where we meet the five freedoms and then we go beyond that as well. Um, so, you know, I, in the sanctuary world, um, my experience there was that um, really the only reason we exist in the sanctuary world is to provide care for, um, for the animals who end up there. Um, in zoos and research laboratories, there are, there are other priorities. Um, there are other aspects to their mission um, that come into play. But um, to me, it is always as a caregiver, your first duty is to the well-being of the individuals who depend on you. Absolutely. And I think if you ask most people who care for animals, wherever they are, wild animals, then they would say when we're talking about professional care staff, they would you know, rather see animals in the wild, like so many animal care staff will travel and see animals in the wild. Um, and are involved in conservation projects, but people are, yeah, about really making sure we do the best that we can for the individuals in our care. And what I learned from you that I hadn't heard before was uh, you actually talk about the individuals as residents in a facility. Can you say something more about, you know, working along and with them and, and this residence approach that, that you talk about? Yeah, I mean, you know, that's the wherever they live, that's where they live, that's where they reside. Um, and so to me, it's just a, a natural term. Um, I, I tend to avoid um, the use of the word animals 
um, except when I'm talking about multiple species and there's no other way to really describe that. Um, partly because I don't, I don't buy into the human-animal dichotomy. Usually people, when they refer to animals, they're referring to all species except humans and we're animals too. So, um, so I've adopted, you know, some, some different terms that I feel like maybe are a little bit more um, accurate without, um, without establishing that false dichotomy between humans and non-humans. So, I mean, to me, it's, you know, whether in a zoo or a sanctuary or a research facility, um, those individuals who live there and cannot leave, they don't have the choice to leave. They are, they are the residents um, and they reside there. And we have to um, make their home as rich and diverse and um, beneficial as possible for their well-being. Yes, and I think these types of words or thinking about what words do we use to talk about animals or portray animals, describe animals, very much also is going to help us think and act in different ways. So talking about animals or individuals or the collection, as we often hear in, in zoos and aquariums, but also in sanctuaries, the animal collection. You know, when we're talking about, you know, the residents, you know, or the individuals and so on, it, it, I think it really helps us also think about the changes and, you know, what do we need to do for animals? What ought we be doing for animals? So I think words can be extremely important. So that's why when I heard you say residence, you know, many years ago, I was like, that's a really, I like that, that word. So not just from obviously, you know, the practical verb of residing, but just that's who they are and, and this is where they are. And, and, and so I like that uh, quite a lot, actually. Yeah, and I agree with you about, you know, the term collection or colony is another one I'm not particularly fond of. Um, because I feel like it, on some level, takes away from um, that they are living beings with wants and needs, and um, they're not just an inanimate collection, and they're not colonizing anything. <laughs> so um, I'm not even really sure where that term came from. Um, so yeah, I like I like terms that um, you know recognize them as as individuals with wants and needs. Yes, and and I think you know like you know if we would look at like a pod of whales or you know like we really you know we we have all these words like a colony of you know what that then means for a species or for a group of animals, but to you know, how do we keep zooming into the individual? Because ultimately, of course, animal welfare is about the individual. So yeah, it's, it's very nice to discuss this. And it's really great to see that many, you know, zoos and aquariums, there are a lot of people talking about the words that we use. And so, yeah, residence is just one other that we could add to that vocabulary as we're expanding um, our views and our, you know, ways of interacting and our relationship to other animals. So. Now, many years ago, I had the, the pleasure of actually visiting you when you were still working for Save the Chimps, and that's still a very fond memory for me. Can you say, uh, talk more about, you know, Save the Chimps and your work there and the, and the residents there? Yes, so I um, worked, from Save the, worked for Save the Chimps from 2003 to 2000 and. 
16, 15, I don't remember which year I left right now. Um, it was 15. And um, I mean, it was really, for me, a transformative experience, I think as much as it was for the chimpanzees who um, were fortunate to end up in our care. So Save the Chimps was founded by Dr. Carol Noon, um, who unfortunately passed away in 2009. But she um, founded Save the Chimps specifically to provide a home for chimpanzees who had been used by the US Air Force in space program originally, and then their descendants um, were used in more traditional biomedical research. And the Air Force was divesting themselves of these chimpanzees. So she wanted to provide um, a permanent sanctuary home for them. And then the laboratory in New Mexico, which was called the Colston Foundation, which ultimately had, you know, originally had cared for these chimpanzees, um, although I put care in many quotes, air quotes, because um, the care was lacking um, in that facility. Um, they went bankrupt and saved the chimps um, with the assistance of the Arcus Foundation was able to rescue all 266 chimpanzees um, en masse um, at once. They took over the whole facility. Um, so I actually left my position in the research laboratory and went to work um, in New Mexico at what was once a research laboratory, but now was being transformed into a sanctuary. So I had the good fortune to work very closely with Dr. Noon, um, learn from her about socializing chimps into groups, and we spent um, years, really almost a deca decade, getting all of these chimps, uh, at least as many as possible, socialized into large groups, and then relocated to Florida, where they would have the opportunity to live on large open-air enclosures, basically islands um, surrounded by water, and, um, and enjoy retirement in Florida. Yes, and it's a wonderful retirement place. Um, I really, yeah, I was really impressed with, you know, all the structures and the views that the animals had and all the activities that you at the time were doing with your staff. So that was really pretty amazing. Yeah, Dr. Noon had an incredible vision um, and an incredible drive to, to make that vision come true. I really don't think there are many people um, who could accomplish what she, she did. Um, fortunately, there are other people who who shared that vision um, and have also established um, sanctuaries uh, within the United States um, and of course around the world um, in Africa um, where the chimps have need for sanctuary for different reasons. Um, but I just, I truly admire um, the people who had the wherewithals to, to get these places going um, and provide a very different future for the chimpanzees than they otherwise might have had. Yes, and this is also interesting and important to note that there's different, of course, like you already alluded to, different reasons of why sanctuaries are necessary, whether it's for the illegal wildlife trade or pet trade or, you know, the bushmeat hunting and, you know, in Africa or maybe, you know, animals retiring from research facilities but of course depending on the country you know chimpanzees can actually be held as as pets as companion animals and you know that is something that of course also in the united states perhaps not in all states i'm not aware of that but 
maybe you can tell us a little bit more about that. But obviously, chimpanzees are not suitable pets. So no, absolutely not. Um, no, <laughs> full stop. No other yeah. is needed. Um, so yeah, in the U.S., um, the primary challenges um, facing chimpanzees in captivity were their use in biomedical research, um, which thankfully has ended. Um, the U.S. was the last country to, to engage in that practice that we know of, and um, the practice stopped in 2015. Um, so there are still chimpanzees um, living in research laboratories, but there's no active biomedical research being conducted on them uh, anymore. And the hope is that eventually they will all transfer out um, into sanctuaries. Um, although there are, you know, a couple of places, you know, where the research laboratories where the chimps do live in, in social groups and they have, um, you know, reasonably spacious outdoor areas. Um, but there are some that still need to, um, to be relocated into better housing. And then the other use of chimps in the United States has been in the entertainment industry. Um, it's pretty much wrapped up, um, but there are still, you know, a, a handful of chimps, um, unfortunately, being used um, in this way, whether it's, you know, TV shows, movies, um, circus acts to a lesser degree now. Um, and then the other problem we have in the U.S. is called pay to play where you can pay money in order to interact with, you know, one-on-one -on -one with, a, with a young chimpanzee or a young um, individual of some other exotic species. Um, and then there's the pet trade. Um, fortunately, um, it is no longer legal to sell um, or buy or sell a chimpanzee across state lines in the U.S., so that's really put um, a damper on the pet trade. And that trade also has almost completely dried up in the United States, but you still do occasionally hear of an infant chimp in the U.S. who's been um, sold, bred and sold, and often now it seems to be to these pay-to-play type operations. So there's still work to be done, but it is a far cry from where we were um, even 20 years ago um, with the state of chimpanzees in the United States. Yes, no, I recently saw some photos indeed, like you were mentioning young chimpanzees. I think it's in Florida where they're like in the water with guests or they're like playing. And um, yeah, of course, our collective work working with PASA, I, I reached out to them and they, of course, are aware of all these things. But yeah, to me, it's really, yeah, uh, devastating also to keep seeing how many of these, especially very young animals, end up in what you call, you know, pay to play. I had no idea that those things were, were going on with such young animals. So that was pretty devastating. But it's so good to hear that there's been such an evolution of, you know, and hopefully, you know, being able to reduce and completely eliminate the, the, the keeping of chimpanzees as pets in the United States or anywhere else, that would be fantastic. Yeah, the, the really great thing is that there's very few people um, privately breeding them for, um, for such purposes anymore. Um, very few individual animals who even know how to, to reproduce. I mean, that's, it's, you know, when you take infants, infants from female chimps, those infants, they don't know how to um, how to reproduce. So um, those chimps end up not being very good for breeding, um, thankfully. 
So it, yeah. it helps to limit it itself. But um, yeah, it's it's still pretty astounding that it even is still going on to the degree that it is. Um, and unfortunately, it's you know like all infant animals, they're they're mammals anyway. They are precious and adorable, and and people are very drawn to them, and they're drawn to this idea of holding or snuggling or playing with um, a species that they would not otherwise encounter. Um, and then they don't think about the fact that this is a baby chimp who was taken from their mother, which is a devastating experience for the mother and the infant, just like it would be for a human. And then that baby is gonna be too strong to handle by the time they're five years old. And then they have another 40 years to live you know, and what's that life going to be like? So that's the thing that we have to educate people on is they have to look past that cute little baby and they have to look at all of the horrible things that surround these practices. Um, but fortunately, at least I feel more and more people are, are educated and understanding um, about it and participating in such things less, but we still have a ways to go. Yes, and I remember at Save the Chimps, there was really a big part also of that was education and really beautiful introduction video and you know really getting people on board and getting to their emotional levels of you know connecting to chimpanzees and respect for them and and you know it, the whole educational part of not having them as as you know pets for example yeah i think you know storytelling is so compelling for humans i mean we we love a good story and we love a story that connects um, to our emotions. And I think that's a really important um, part of all of this is telling the individual stories, telling about their experience from birth until arrival at the sanctuary or even, you know, at the time of their death, um, letting people know what their lives were like um, and the good and the bad um, so that we can use that information to make better choices um, and make informed choices so that other chimpanzees or tiger cubs or whoever it is don't have to go through the same um, experience in the future. I think ultimately most humans are compassionate and caring and um, they just may not be aware of the big picture and, and that's super important um, to let people know, you know, here's what's going on behind that cute picture or that that moment that you want to pay for. Um, and most people, I think, understand and want to do the right thing. Yes, absolutely. I agree with you. I think most uh, people are indeed compassionate and they want to make better choices. Sometimes they're just not, like you say, aware of it or they haven't thought about it. And um, yeah, so it's absolutely fundamental to have all these important education programs. and. Of course, good sanctuaries, just like good zoos and aquariums and shelters have, you know, education programs and, and other perhaps research or conservation. And, and you and I have both worked in, um, you know, capacity building programs for PASA sanctuaries, for example. Can you talk a little bit about your experiences as you were been to several PASA sanctuaries now and you work also as an instructor on the program in general and the importance of like the primate care training program? 
Yeah, so I've been fortunate to visit, um, well, just in a um, visitor capacity, Ngamba Island uh, Chimpanzee Sanctuary in Uganda, which is an amazing sanctuary. I was so impressed with, um, with their operation. And then also Sweetwater's Chimpanzee Sanctuary in Kenya. And then finally, um, Lilongwe Wildlife Center in Malawi. And um, I, I always welcome the opportunity not only to share my own expertise, but to learn um, from those sanctuaries because they have very different challenges um, from sanctuaries in the US. I mean, everything from availability of materials and food and electricity um, to where their animals are coming from. I mean, they're getting infants who, you know, have seen their families murdered in front of them. Um, and it's just a very, it's just a very different, um, just in how you care for them and how you approach for them and the needs that they have because they've suffered a very different type of trauma. So um, for me, it's all about information exchange. Um, and I'm, I want to share my expertise with them, and then I want to learn um, their expertise and um, their experiences. And that just helps make everyone be better caregivers um, in the end. That's exactly how I feel it when, you know, I travel to different, doesn't really matter where you go, but this whole exchange and, you know, being the eternal student, right? To always just keep learning. There's always somebody who knows something that you don't and going to places and also really getting a grasp for what the challenges are that different facilities around the world are facing. And, you know, things that might be very common here in the Netherlands or Spain or in Florida might be obviously be very different for various reasons in other places. And not just from a financial perspective, but also what kind of food can you get for the animals and you know all those different questions or what are the obstacles when it comes to diseases that might have different types of transmission uh, depending on where you are geographically and so on so yeah, it's always so interesting to learn from the people that are there and know the the individuals there of course but also you know the community around the sanctuary what are the things that that worry the people there or what could help the people there uh, because, of course, a lot of the work, especially in sanctuaries like in Africa, is also around the community that lives around it. And um, yeah, all those different aspects are extremely interesting and beautiful to learn about when you're interacting with different teams. Yeah, what I've, you know, really enjoyed learning about is, um, you know, how you basically how you make do and still meet the needs of the animals um, in your care, whether the, you know, whether they're monkeys or a crocodile or a turaco or a chimpanzee. Um, I feel like, you know, in the United States, we take a lot of things for granted. And um, we have these really sort of like, huge, you know, massive elevated standards, which we should have. Um, but, you know, going to, um, to other countries where the resources are simply different, um, you know, I've, I've learned, okay, you know, there's, there's always a workaround, um, and we're very, very fortunate um, in the U.S. and in Europe to have some of the resources that we do, um, but it's, it's, it's possible to, um, to meet the needs no matter, you know, what your resources are. You just have to think creatively and um, be willing to, to work at it. 
and always keep the individuals you're caring for in the top of your mind. Yes, and, and some of the sanctuaries that we have visited have been incredible in, from the past sanctuaries, have been incredible with regards to their opportunities that we can be jealous of uh, when it comes to perhaps facilities in North America or Europe, just because of the sheer amount of vegetation and green spaces that some of these animals have access to, right? And you're like, oh, I wish I had, you know, uh, such a big part of forest where, you know, everybody could just wander around and have a good time and hide. And <laughs> so some of that is also interesting to see where you're like looking at like, oh, this is fantastic that you have that here. It's really hard for us to replicate that, uh, say in the Netherlands, right? Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I think the, the acreage that Ngamba has and that Sweetwaters has, and then the, the huge open air corrals that the monkeys had um, at the long way. I mean, they lived in basically small forests. Um, it's not something that I could conceive of having um, in the US. <laughs> I mean, I think there are a few places like Born Free um, uh, Primate Sanctuary in Texas. They have large open air enclosures, um, but but yeah, I definitely feel like in the range countries, there's a lot more opportunity for that, and the you know they get to live more natural life, for lack of a better term. Yeah. So when we met in the UK for the Primate Welfare seminar that uh, Chester Zoo so graciously hosted and all the help with their staff. I actually, you know, we had some time to talk and of course, you know, you again shared all your experiences on uh, on chimpanzee and monkey behavior and everything else. But what I also learned when we were having some downtime is that you actually are a very big fan of James Harriet and his work on, you know, all creatures great and small and um, can you say a little bit about that? Because you actually went on a quite special side trip after that, right? I did. So when I was um, a kid, my I was always just completely, you know, besotted with animals. And I wanted to be a veterinarian. And, um, and you know, like I said, my all my friends were dogs. <laughs> so <laughs> aunt gave me um, the James Harriet books, the All Creatures Great and Small series. And um, those books continue to be friends of mine, basically, to this day. I read them over and over and over again. They're my comfort reading. If I'm sick, I pull out James Harriet because it's just like a warm blanket for me. So I was thrilled to have the opportunity to go um, to Thirsk in Yorkshire in the United Kingdom and tour his old veterinary surgery where he lived. Um, I, I actually drove a car, which was terrifying for me. Um, <laughs> to um, a, a natural, a, like a little park um, and trail area where he was known to walk his dogs. And it just was really, it was really a beautiful experience for me. And, um, and you know, he, his writing helped just affirm and shape um, my love of animals, um, all creatures, great and small, as he, as he puts it. And, um, and so I really enjoyed, I enjoyed that opportunity. And it's funny, just this weekend, I was listening to a podcast, a new podcast um, called, I'm trying to remember the name, it's something about Harriet Country, but they, um, whoever's producing it interviews people in um, the area of Thirsk who once knew um, James Harriet, his real name was Alf White. And um, so yeah, it was kind of delightful to hear, um, hear their stories and hear 
the accent that he so eloquently captured in his books. Yes, I love his books. So when I heard, you know, talk, you talking about that and that you arranged this side trip, I thought that was so great. Uh, I was yeah, it was like a little pilgrimage almost. <laughs> yes, excellent. Um, yeah, so thank you so much for sharing, you know, all your primates, you know, experiences. Today, you actually don't work with primates all the time. Sometimes, obviously, you do these side trips, but you work at the shelter. Can you say a little bit about what you're doing there and, you know, your position and how you work with your staff? Yes, so I work with human primates now, um, more exclusively and less with the <laughs> non-animals. So. Um, after Save the Chimps, I um, worked with another sanctuary, a new sanctuary called Project Chimps, and um, I was working more on the administrative side at that point, um, helping them establish their policies and procedures um, as they got off the ground. So I shifted into more administrative work, and then the um, founder of Project Chimps, um, got an opportunity to lead Humane Society Naples, um, and she invited me to um, to join their team. So I took her up on that, and um, so now I'm their director of human resources. So it's my job to um, make sure that the humans are happy, um, and um, make sure that you know we have the best team possible, um, that the staff's needs are met, whether it's their you know, health benefits or um, just, you know, kind of general well-being, make sure they understand compassion fatigue, make sure they have access to counselors if they need it. So that's my um, my current role. Um, and I, I really love the work that our shelter does. Um, we are a limited admission shelter, which um, most people in the U.S. call no-kill shelter. Um, it just means we don't euthanize for space. Um, but um, we have started to um, focus on taking in um, dogs and cats who might otherwise um, not get adopted from a traditional municipal shelter. Maybe they have some behavior issues that need to be worked on. Um, maybe they have some special medical needs. And we have the resources and expertise to help um, those animals um, get a chance at being adopted as well. So. We have a really strong behavior program to work on dogs with behavioral issues. We um, adopt out cats who might have, you know, viral diseases like feline leukemia or FIV um, that other shelters might not have the capacity um, to care for and adopt out because it does take longer to adopt them out. So I'm really proud of the work we do and, um, and we collaborate with other shelters regionally and we collaborate with rescue groups in Puerto Rico and North Georgia and we just we help save lives and I'm really proud of the work that we do and I'm happy to be a part of it. That sounds wonderful and you touch on so many important points whether it's having the structural behavioral you know expertise to help animals that need special attention to be adopted successfully, but you also touch on the importance of happy people and, you know, people that feel that, that they have resilience, that they can do their jobs well, and that they, of course, can cope with some of the difficulties that come with, with the job as well. So, and um, yeah, there's luckily more and more attention to compassion fatigue and 
compassion, satisfaction, and resilience, and this, this important part of you being well in order to serve others and to care for others. So it sounds absolutely fantastic. Of course, we will put a link to the, the shelter that you're working uh, for at the moment so that people that you know want to support or, or learn more about your programs can find information there as well. And you know, we have come to almost an hour of really delightful stories and hearing all your expertise in lots of different animals really and in lots of different situations. And I'm really grateful for us to have spent this time together. Do you have one last, because we're all always, you know, up for a good story, as you said earlier, do you have one really good, I don't know, cool story of someone to share with us before we- Yes, so podcast? it does involve, um, it involves direct physical contact, which I do not advocate um, with chimpanzees, but this was a special case and it's just something that has really stayed with me. Um, and will hopefully stay with me my entire life. So there was a chimpanzee named Scarlett and she had epilepsy. She would have seizures regularly. Um, she was on treatment for it, um, but she, she had a seizure and following her seizure, she did not um, recover. She did not sit up after her seizure. She was awake and she was alert, but she did not move. And it became very apparent that she was paralyzed. Um, following her seizure. We don't know, we weren't physically present when the seizure happened, so we don't know, you know, if she fell or if another chimpanzee injured her because chimpanzees get very distressed when a member of their family has a seizure. Um, and they often can, you know, will jump on um, the chimpanzee or, or kick them or hit them. They're just, they're confused and they're upset. Um, so we, um, you know, we, we basically removed her from her enclosure, we, we put her in a, a treatment um, cage where we could manage her care better. Um, and, you know, I think many organizations would feel that euthanasia um, was the, the best and maybe even only option for an individual like Scarlett. She was, she had a very odd form of paralysis. She was, um, she had what's called barrel man syndrome. So her arms and torso were paralyzed, but she had movement in her legs. It like defies everything everyone knows about paralysis, um, but it happened and, and this is what she had. Um, but we decided to you know, treat her, give her physical therapy and just give her time and see what happened. And um, so we did have to have direct physical contact with her because she was not able to feed herself um, and she had very, very limited movement. So she had to be turned so she didn't have bed sores, um, things of that nature. She did begin to um, get some of her movement back very, very um, slowly and gradually. And I was sitting with her one day um, in her treatment cage and she was gazing up and there was just something in her demeanor and and her look that made me feel like she wanted to sit up but she and she had not um sat up yet even though she was starting to regain her movement so i got behind her and i helped move her into a sitting position and i could feel that she was putting effort into it too um, and so she she sat up with my assistance and she held herself up for a while it was remarkable 
and then she just very gently sort of leaned back into me like I was, you know, a chair. Um, and it was just, it was amazing. She sat up and, um, and she continued to progress and she never looked back. She walked again. Um, and she moved to Florida and, and she lived a beautiful life until she, she passed away. Um, but that's an experience that will always stick with me. And it taught me that even, you know, that you do have to give them a chance, even if it seems hopeless, um, as long as you can make sure they're not in pain, they're, they're not seeming to have extreme distress, um, give them a chance. She's not the first paralyzed chip I've seen recover. And, um, hopefully it won't be the last beautiful beautiful story really really touching also this um how you describe how you know you can feel how she is really making an effort and then obviously when she gets tired you know using you as a chair as a you know support and you know and not you know recovering from it that's absolutely amazing that is yeah. really beautiful yeah yeah incredible as a testament to her veterinary care first of all she had dr besner dr jocelyn besner was is just an incredible chimpanzee veterinarian um you know willing to do whatever it takes and consults with specialists um she got you know she got an mri and um you know we did everything we could to figure out what was going on and everything we could to to help her recover and then it's also just a testament to the fighting spirit of the chimpanzee um, they really have a strong will and um, to to heal and recover and a capacity for healing like I've never seen. Wonderful. Thank you so much for sharing yeah, all your experiences and all these beautiful stories of the individuals that you worked with. Well, we have come to, you know, the end of the podcast. I don't know if there's anything else that you would like to share or maybe your personal mantra or anything else that you that you want to share with us and otherwise i'm going to thank you so much for coming on and of course you know we will continue to talk and collaborate for animals anywhere i think um i've really enjoyed this conversation and um i hope it gives you know people things to think about so and um and i will just close with um a pant hoot i think is too much for a microphone <laughs> so yes a little a, a very quiet so I, always have, I always happily do food grunts and um, chimp laughter. Um, everyone can, everyone hears the pant hoot. They can, people can go look online for Jane Goodall pant hooting, but I also have, I love chimp laughter and whenever I hear it, it just brings me joy. And um, so it's just a very kind of like breathy, slight grunting sound. So if you Let's ever hear, that. yeah, if you ever yeah. hear chimp doing this, they're very, very happy. So. <laughs> That's a chimp laugh. Excellent. Thank you so much for being on. And yes, thank you for ending on a very positive chimp laughter. So that's great. Thank you so much, Jen. And talk thank to you, you soon. Sabrina. Already the end of the podcast. I hope you enjoyed that as much as we did. Find us on your favorite platform and leave your comments and suggestions or go to the Animal Concepts website to send us your questions and feedback. We are so happy to answer them and address them in future podcasts.
Animal Concepts is dedicated to helping you care for animals and yourself. Are you interested in quality animal care and welfare content, in actions and resources for you to be well while caring for animals? Then check out PAWS, the practical animal welfare science platform, which has webinars, science into practice case studies, private Facebook live sessions, and a lot of resources for you and the animals you care for. You can share your experiences and connect to animal care professionals and scientists from around the world. In the meantime, take care of you and the animals and keep buzzing.